your customers are your most likely investors. Of course, when you're on the platform, people who are on the Crowdcube email database are going to get emails about you and they might be encouraged to have a look. But that's only going to happen if the round has got momentum and that momentum needs to come from your existing audience and your existing connections. Welcome back to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Fifth Wave. For small hospitality businesses looking to take that ambitious next step in their growth plans, securing external investment is often a daunting task. What are the funding levels available to your business? How do you find the right investment partner? And importantly, what do you need to do before embarking upon the investment trail? External funding is often essential to scaling up any business. So in various episodes over the next few months, we'll be exploring this topic to find out in detail just what goes into preparing and executing a successful funding strategy. And in today's episode, I'm delighted to be speaking with David Abramovich, CEO and founder of Grind, a boutique hospitality group with over 10 sites, a roastery and a direct-to-consumer coffee business. Founded in 2011 in Old Street, London, David has helped steer grind through a number of successful multi-million dollar funding rounds. In this conversation, David walks us through each stage of Grind's funding rounds, from angel investment to crowdfunding, and then securing ultra-high net worth investors. He shares his invaluable advice for any ambitious entrepreneur looking to raise capital for growth. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me again. It's always lovely to see you. Now, you've been on the show before, but for our new listeners, could you give us the latest background on Grind and the various stages of how the business has grown over the years? I founded Grind in, in 2011. It was it was Shoreditch Grind at the time. It was a, a single site, coffee shop only. And, and then after a year or so, we decided to start selling coffee uh, cocktails and you know featuring heavily on the espresso martini in the evenings. And then that one store proved really, really successful. It was, yeah, it's just on Old Street Roundabout, just at the gateway to East London. This is 2011. The Olympics are coming next year. Shoreditch is really the place to be. And, you know, that, that first store became really, really successful within about 18 months. And, and that gave me a platform to raise a little bit of external capital, our first external capital, because we, we funded the first store privately. Um, and then bit by bit over the years, fundraised by fundraise, site by site, grew the business and grew the brand. And, and the sites became bigger. Um, they started having full kitchens and serving a full food menu all day and all night, seven days a week. And, you know, our largest site in Greenwich, I think, you know, you have a couple of hundred people having brunch there simultaneously on a Saturday or a Sunday. So they became much bigger and more complex operations. Um, but the thing that it always centered around was coffee and the brand of of Grind really resonated with people and, and our particular spin on things. And in 2019, we, we did a, another fundraiser, our third Crowdcube fundraiser. And I decided to spend a little bit of that money on developing a direct-to-consumer business, you know, an online coffee business focusing on uh, compostable coffee pods, you know, which I think was a really good idea and I'm glad we did it. But equally, 
it was one of those things that got made to look like a really, really good idea when the world closed down in, in March 2020 for for obvious reasons as the pandemic took hold. And, uh, you know, clearly we had to shutter our high street business like everyone else. But luckily we had this uh, relatively new e-commerce business. You, you know, everything had come together just at the right time. And that really kind of exploded at, at the start of, of lockdown and has, has never stopped growing since as well. And a lot of the pandemic explosion businesses like that kind of went through the roof and then they dropped back again as things went back to normal. Um, but our, our online business has, has kept growing and, and we've continued to invest in it over the years, um, so much so that that's now a bigger business than the whole high street business combined. And then in addition to that, we have um, Grind at Work, where we work with um, you know B2B customers. Most not- notably, we supply Soho House globally with coffee and coffee pods. And we work with other hotels and uh, offices and stuff like that where you know people are having grind coffee rather than at home at the workplace and that's underpinned now by pretty large team a 20,000 square foot roastery in Bermondsey I think we have 15 locations or so and then yeah this big e-commerce business so I guess a lot has grown from that original story and certainly fundraising has been a really important part of that journey and uh, the two businesses structured completely separately in terms of from an investor point of view or is it one big run group no one business one parent company you know we have subsidiaries operating subsidiaries underneath for various different reasons um but no we are we are one business and one brand so when you're kind of going out to investors it's uh, investment in the whole caboodle yeah absolutely because all, all of the things are like that they all help each other so they're all they all positively reinforce the other thing. So when you come to one of our stores and you have an amazing experience, that positively reinforces the brand that you then see an advert for on the tube on on your way home or on TV when you get home and you switch the TV on. And that makes you think that maybe, you know, next time we serve you or you see us on on Instagram or something like that, you think, yeah, do you know what? I've heard of these guys. I've been to one of the stores maybe or I'm aware of the stores. Maybe I should try and have their coffee at home. And then you start drinking it at home. And then, you know, at some point, someone in the workplace says, you know, why don't we have grind coffee here? It's, I have it at home and it's great. And then we end up in, in, in the workplace as well. So they all reinforce one another positively when we get it right. So thinking about the entrepreneur back, um, taking that first investment, what was going through your head at the time? It's sort of like, I want to do this next second site. Yeah. Potentially. And what's the thinking behind that? You know, you could have gone out and looked for bank funding potentially rather than than an equity investor. Yeah, although I think pretty tough with an early stage hospitality business to get significant uh, bank funding. I think the bank will come might come along for part of the journey and would perhaps help with with asset financing equipment and and stuff like that. But I think you know they're unlikely to be your entire funding source unless. And unless the, the numbers coming out of the first site are so exceptional that you can somehow underpin back. But I think that's a pretty, right. I think that's relatively unlikely. So for me, it was, we had this one store, which was going really, really well. I loved it. But at the time, I was very clear that look, the business wasn't going to be backed by venture capital because it was too small um, at the time. But I was clear that that wasn't the kind of relationship I wanted to have with my new investors. I wanted a much more personal relationship. I wanted to find an individual to to fund it as opposed to an institution to fund it because I think they're quite different things. Yeah. Um, and so, so that was my 
requirement really and I wanted it to be someone that I you know thought got it not not from a numbers level but actually just like understood what we were trying to do with the brand I, I, I wanted someone who was able to come along for the journey and one of the things I always say is if you're raising 250 grand from from some sources to do something you really don't want that to come from someone and it be their last or only 250 grand if you can possibly avoid it because you know for a number of reasons a because really you want someone who's able to follow on because things always take longer and are more difficult and and you often end up requiring more money than you might have thought so you want someone who's got the ability or you know the means and and potentially the appetite to follow on but also you, you know, you want the the investment to be appropriate in terms of that person's own net worth. I think the point is that investing, particularly if it's SEIS or EIS investing, which it might well be at the early stages, which you know, for anyone that doesn't know, that's just tax advantaged investing for for investors. So it means if people invest under those schemes, they get, you know, between 30 to 50% off in their next tax bills. And then any returns are tax-free as well in the future, as long as they hold it for three years. So it can be quite favorable for, you know, high earners or high net worth individuals. You just want to get a, a feel that this is not the most important thing in the world to them, because that's that's just not going to create a good dynamic. If they've given you their entire life savings, they're going to be overly invested, overly concerned with your day-to-day pro- progress. And that's not going to be helpful for either of you to get what you want. So really, ideally, I'd say you want to raise money from a group of people rather than one individual, if you can, and, and spread that risk around and, and make sure, or if you can, that you're not overly beholden to one individual, unless you're very, very sure that that individual is the, is the right one. And this, this advice applies more, I think, to early stage than, than, than later stage. I think things change as you get bigger. Obviously, you give away an equity share. How do you decide how much you want to give away? The goal is as much money as possible, giving away as little as possible, right? So let's start there. Um, I think early stage businesses are incredibly difficult to value. And people often say to me, well, who should I get to value the business? Or how can I value the business? And it just it just doesn't work like that. It's a willing buyer and a willing seller, and it needs to be a deal that works for both parties. And look, of course, you know, some people will argue that it's certain multiples of revenue or it's certain multiples of EBITDA. And yeah, these things are useful yardsticks, perhaps, but I think they apply less and less the smaller the businesses and the earlier stage it is. Look, at the end of the day, it needs to be just commensurate to the level of risk that the external investor is taking. And it needs to be decided in the context of the overall cap table and what that looks like and how many partners are there because you you, you want to try and make sure that everyone is aligned, i.e. the external investor coming in feels like they're getting a meaningful amount of the business and have got room to be diluted in the future, either by their own money or someone else's because inevitably there will be more rounds. There's very few businesses that have done one round of funding, right? But equally, you want to make sure that the management team and the founder or founders have got enough skin in the game that they're excited and they're going to work really, really hard to, to get a return for themselves and for the investors. But ultimately, it has to work for both. And, and look, normally, the process of negotiation and, and the market will do that. And that's the one of the most difficult jobs of the, the CEO or whoever's in charge of that fundraising program is, is trying to corral that interest into actually making something happen. 
you know, turning those nice conversations. And yeah, I, I'd probably be up for investing, maybe, yeah. to here's the docs, yeah. send the money, we're going, right? There's a yeah. big gap between that conversation and it actually happening. And a lot of your time? Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, a huge amount of Does time. Does it become your main project, sort of? Yeah, and, and it's the classic thing is, you know, and you see it time and time again that you've got a business doing well and they start fundraising uh, and, you know, the numbers are based on however the business is performing at the time and then the fundraising process ends up taking three to six months and, and the founder or the CEO whoever's doing it is distracted and the numbers come off and so by the time it comes to close, someone says, oh, can we just get an update on the last six months' numbers? And then they're not what the plan said they would be. Right. And then you end up in a, well, you know, maybe that EBITDA or revenue multiple number that we agreed, maybe we need to look at bringing that down because actually the business is not doing what you said it was going to do. So, you know, so that's a whole nother challenge to manage is the time stretch that, that, that inevitably comes from all fundraising processes. So that second round of funding, yeah. how did that eventuate? God, look, I mean, I think we've done several rounds of funding from high net worths. Then we did three Crowdcube rounds, I think uh, a one million round, then a two and a half million round, then a three and a half million round. And then we now have um, kind of an ultra high net worth investor. And the last few rounds we've done have been, I think, 22 million, then 15 million. I think the first ever external capital infusion was something like six or seven hundred thousand pounds from a couple of high net worth so we and then the crowdcube rounds obviously featured you know i think in total we have about three thousand crowd investors now so i think really if we talk about the second round we probably mean the crowdcube story and journey because i think as we transition from a single site business to uh, let's say a five location business i think that was when we first that was when we stepped it up and said, okay, right, let's, it's time to do, it's time to do Crowdcube now. We're going to kind of go a bit bigger on this. So that was really the next phase of the fundraising journey, I think. Is that the three and a half million? If I... No, no. So we, sorry, we did three rounds on Crowdcube. Oh, okay. Um, so I think the first one was, was 1.3 million. 1.3, 2.5. Sorry, 1.3, 2.1, 1, 3.5 actually are the yeah. correct numbers. Um, so I, I would kind of divide our fundraising into the first few rounds, which were high net worth. The middle bit, which was which was Crowdcube, and then the more recent bit, which is kind of ultra high net worth. Um, and, and so, look, so the Crowdcube era for us was, you know, it was an amazing time, and it was an incredibly valuable experience for us in, in lots of different ways. And you know, I'm asked a lot about our crowdfunding experience. I, I think after Brewdog. We've raised more money on crowdfunding than any other hospitality business in history. We have, you know, a few thousand, as I said, crowd investors who are all individual ambassadors. They're customers. They get our coffee pods and, and coffee at home. They visit our stores and they're massive brand supporters. And the great thing about Crowdcube is that it, you can also chuck in the high net worth interest into the mix. Because, you know, if you've got something that is good, there's always interest ticking over and people coming to you and saying, oh, let me know next time you're doing a round. And it's a great place to point people at because, it, it you know, I talked earlier about it's quite hard to cajole those nice conversations into an actual round. Yeah. Crowdcube is a really good way of doing that because it's like, guys, look, we're, we're going on the platform in two weeks and we're going to be on the platform for two weeks. And these are the terms. So, you know, either invest then or don't. 
It's up yeah. to you. It's a great way to get people to commit. And it's great look, when, you, when it goes right and when you get it right, it's amazing for the brand because it just propels the brand into hundreds of thousands of email inboxes. And, you know, if you support it with your own marketing through your own channels and maybe even some external advertising and PR, you can really create a great buzz about the business. And so I'm a massive crowdfunding fan. And obviously you get to set your own terms. So rather than have the terms dictated to you by external parties, you set the valuation, you set the terms. Now, if the crowd don't like it, and if you're if you're too greedy or you get that wrong, then your round will fail. And that's a big problem. And you don't want to allow that to happen. But equally, you do get to at least control the terms rather than having them dictated to you. What do you think was the key to your success in that crowd raising series that you did? I think, first of all, you need to have a business which is suitable for the crowd. And by that, I mean, you know, clearly consumer businesses or app-based businesses, technology-based businesses that are consumer-facing, they're really well geared to be crowdfunded because they're easy to explain, they're easy to understand. People can try the product if they want, so they can download the app or they can go get a coffee or whatever it is and they can try it out. And that's clearly a more interesting crowd, inv- likely to be a more successful crowd raise than some kind of B2B backend system that unless you're in that industry, just you don't really understand or doesn't really make sense. Um, so like a consumer business is great. And then if you've got your own existing audience, that's amazing. So, you know, at the time we had, I don't know, probably we probably had many tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand Instagram followers at the time of these rounds. We had lots of email addresses from people that had signed up to our loyalty card schemes. We had our physical stores where we could put posters up and talk to people about it. So uh, we had a way to communicate with our own existing customers because your customers are your most likely investors. Of course, when you're on the platform, people who are on the Crowdcube email database are going to get emails about you and they might be encouraged to have a look. But that's only going to happen if the round has got momentum. And that momentum needs to come from your existing audience and your existing connections. And you know, it's important to, th- to remember that Crowdcube is a platform as opposed to the source of the money, if you like. Like it's a platform to facilitate a raise. It's not the investing party. It doesn't magically bring in lots of people to invest in your business just because you're on the platform. It can help, but you've got to do a lot of the heavy lifting. So look, so we, we treated it as a marketing campaign every time, right? So it was a, you know, there was a whole strategy to when we announce that it's going to go live, when it goes live, how we support it in the stores, how we support it digitally, how we make the video compelling, how we make the story great and, and build that into you know, what is essentially a marketing campaign, uh, yeah, instead of instead of the outcome you want being buy this product, it's invest in the business. Very, very clever. Oh, listen, I mean, uh, easy to explain, difficult to do well. And look, you know, it, it, it took a huge amount of work every time we did it. And I mean, it absolutely took over my life all three times, you know, to the point where you would almost just sit there on your computer all day, pressing refresh, watching the money and the questions come in and then answering the questions on the forum or answering the emails as quickly as you could, as best you could. I mean, it becomes very hard to 
you know, particularly when we were doing some of the bigger rounds when there was more risk and it felt like we'd made a huge amount of noise about it. You know, it's, it's, it can be a scary process thinking, oh, we're not going to make it to the target or whatever. You know, luckily we, we managed to smash through the target within a few hours every single time. So that kind of takes, takes away some of the risk. But there's always the target that's set on Crowdcube and the real target you've got in your mind, which is normally multiples of the target that you set on Crowdcube. So the 1.3, the 2.1 and the 3.5, you actually had a lower threshold. Yeah, the targets for those would have been, I don't know, 250, 500 and a million. You know, I, think, okay. I think the target yeah. on the three three and a half million round was a million. Right. Um, and that's actually, it's called a target, but it's not really a target. It's actually a minimum because at 999,000 of investment, the round doesn't complete. So unless you get to the target, the round doesn't actually complete. So it's important to set that at a sensible level. Yeah. And then and ideally line up as many external investors. You know, if your target on Crowdcube is a million, ideally you would have a million pounds worth of investment pre-committed from external investors who have agreed to the terms. Or at least, you know, maybe not the whole million, but certainly yeah. you'd you'd want to think that you are halfway there at least. Okay, now let's think about the third yeah. round of the the ultra high net worth um, individuals who put money in. How was that different to the to the previous rounds? So very different, quite unique set of circumstances in that we had a successful business going into the pandemic. As I mentioned, we launched this direct consumer business, which which really took off at a at a scale. We ship a few thousand parcels a day now of of coffee to people around the world. It really took off to a level. That, that none of us could have imagined. And, and so that opened up some, some new avenues, really, that probably just weren't available to us before. You know, it became very clear during the pandemic that we were going to emerge from this a very different business, both an, an e-com direct-to-consumer business, and more recently we've moved into grocery as well. Um, you know, so we, we were clearly going to come out of the pandemic quite a different business to the one we went into it. And, and therefore, it made sense to fund that new journey because it was going to require funding and also use that as an opportunity to change things up a little bit in terms of the existing investor base, maybe exit some of the original investors, which we did. Um, and really, all of those conversations that I was having at the time came from kind of personal network built up over the years um, of individuals or, or institutions that I'd got to know. And then having conversations as 100% on Zoom at the time, yep and pulling together a, a round for the future of the business. The, the investor is a guy called Richard Koch. Um, he's an, a, an incredible guy. He founded LEK Consulting. He was the K in LEK. Um, he's a, yeah, a management consultant through and through, but he's also an author. He, he's written lots of best-selling books, most famously The 80-20 Principle. Um, and he's kind of a sector agnostic investor, i.e. he will invest in any sector in which he believes that there's an opportunity to build something really big, or often as a challenger brand of some kind or as a disruptor. And so, you know, that was really about just finding the right person and doing a, a sensible a sensible deal. But I think that that deal was, was 10 years in the making at that point, right? That was about everything we'd built, everyone I'd met, our reputation as a business, I guess, 
slightly my reputation as a as a founder and a CEO and what happened to them and the people that I'd managed to bring along on the journey as investors. Yeah, because ultimately one of our investors introduced us to who has now become our primary investor. So that came through that that network. So I guess that's why it's so important over the years to try and do what you said you were going to do and 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 deliver and and work hard and try hard and and keep to the plan and look that doesn't mean that everything has to go right um clearly everything has not gone not gone right and it doesn't in every journey but i think you know if, if you try and you're sensible and, and you get more things right than you get wrong people will at some point think that you're a person or an individual that is worth backing when you bring in investors you're actually signing you know, a lot of legal, you know, contracts. You technically, there's an obligation to those shareholders. What sort of advice would you give to someone that's sort of signing a deal um, so that you can make sure you preempt what could happen in the future? The answer is that this stuff is difficult and it's tricky and it's it's never perfect. And I don't think anyone comes out of these processes thinking they won all of the arguments that they wished they'd won. Because if they did, then it probably wasn't fair on the other party. I mean, look, I think I was 24 when we started. So, you know, I was pretty young, pretty early in in my business career, I guess. And look, I, th- I think you just have to get sensible advice at the time if you can. Talk to other people who've been through a similar process and always try and think about, you know, don't just look at what does the cap table look like after this round try and run some scenarios about what does it look like in future? Okay, well, we get this money and then we grow like this and then we do another raise of this amount at this valuation. What will that look like then? And, and okay, well, that how does that look for new shareholders? How does that look for me? Look, and, and at the same time, don't try and crystal ball the world too much because you, you drive yourself mad if you're trying to think years and years ahead. But certainly things that are very early stage, I, I like to ask someone to say you know look let's let's do a theoretical first round second round and third round where do we think we all end up after that and i think at least looking at it through that lens i think can be helpful um and then look you you've got to find a balance between focusing on the detail and getting it right and trying to do the best deal you can and that is important and it shouldn't be done flippantly but equally you don't want to spend a year negotiating your first external capital. And at some point, it has to just be good enough that you do the round, you get the money, you build the next thing, and then you revisit. And then you do it again and again and again. And I think, you know, I do see some people who just seem to spend, just move too slowly and spend too long on these things because the world changes, right? The world changes fast and things go in and out of fashion and investors, that you know, the, look how quickly it changed from a zero interest rate environment to a 5% interest rate environment. And... That, that, that changes things for external investors massively. Like your EIS investment opportunity was was arguably a lot more attractive in a zero interest rate uh, world than it is today. So like people who've got a mortgage, right? Like you have to do the best you can at, at the moment to decide what you're going to do, but you, you don't have a crystal ball. So at some point you have to get on with it and make a decision because not making a decision can be the most painful route of all. Finally, for Grind... Can we expect further fund fundraising? Is is that something that you'd be looking at? Or are you done for now and you can grow the business organically? I mean, I think that that's a route that we could choose, absolutely. But equally, it just depends. It depends on your appetite to go international. It depends on your appetite to push the brand into new channels or how aggressively you want to push. And that's something that 
the board and, and myself are constantly evaluating and looking at. And look, we, we see a huge amount of open space for Grind to move into in terms of being a super high quality um, coffee brand at scale that is able to go national and international and occupy some of the kind of white space between the independents, which are pretty small, and, you know, the big chains, which are absolutely massive. And there's a lot of white space between those two. And, and if you look at the US, there will be some good examples of of independent coffee brands that have scaled up and become much, much bigger businesses. You know, the Lacalomes, the Blue Bottles, those kind of people. And, you know, we're probably amongst the best examples of people operating that space here, but our scale is a lot smaller than something like um, Blue Bottle or, or Lacalome, and that's the white space that we want to push into. So I, I see, particularly in in this new world of hybrid working and all that kind of stuff, and everyone just wanting better coffee all of the time. You know, that's why our ready to drink coffee cans are are super exciting, and that's that's gone really really well. We acquired a ready to drink coffee business earlier this year. We kind of reformulated and, and relaunched them as grind cans on our website and they're now flowing into grocery channels as well. And, and, you know, so there's new ways to drink coffee. People are drinking more coffee at home and in the workplace and people want higher quality coffee in all of these places. And, you know, I think that, to be honest, we, we, we're trying to work out what we say yes to out of all of the things that we feel like we could do. You, you know, it's more like, what do you say no to than a lack of opportunities. Wonderful, David. Thanks for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's fascinating to understand the immense amount of work, planning and commitment that goes on behind the scenes to raising capital. And I was particularly inspired by David's approach to crowdfunding, tapping into his existing audience and executing the funding process like any well-planned marketing campaign. And from that, Grind went on to secure a large network of engaged long-term investors before ultimately raising substantial funds with ultra-high net worth investors. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this show, please recommend us to a friend or colleague. And if you want to stay informed, visit worldcoffeeportal.com to get access to all the latest global coffee news, including the weekly Coffee Dose, our newsletter collecting all the big coffee news stories of the week. Links are in the show notes. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. And this week's song, in collaboration with the Coffee Music Project, is Streets of London by UK-based artist Charlotte Campbell. Until next time, stay safe, stay passionate, and stay caffeinated. There's music in my heart There's music
on the streets of London. That's what 